Luke chapter 1, verse 26. This is God's Word. In the sixth month, God sent the angel Gabriel to Nazareth, a town in Galilee, to a virgin pledged to be married to a man named Joseph, a descendant of David. The virgin's name was Mary. The angel went to her and said, Greetings, you who are highly favored. The Lord is with you. Mary was greatly troubled at his words and wondered what kind of greeting this might be. But the angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary. You have found favor with God. You will be with child and give birth to a son, and you are to give him the name Jesus. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. The Lord God will give him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever. His kingdom will never end. How will this be, Mary asked the angel, since I am a virgin? The angel answered, The Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. So the Holy One to be born will be called the Son of God. Even Elizabeth, your relative, is going to have a child in her old age, and she who was said to be barren is in her sixth month, for nothing is impossible with God. I am the Lord's servant, Mary answered. May it be to me as you have said. Then the angel left her. Amen. We trust that God will bless to us this reading from His Word. Well, here we are at another Christmas season, traditionally a time when we remember the incarnation of the Son of God and the birth of the baby at Bethlehem. And for many people, the very central truth of Christmas is so amazing, so incredible, that they actually find it unacceptable. When Christians say that Jesus Christ, the Son of God, was born of a virgin, born miraculously to a young woman who was sexually pure, they just can't believe it. It's a miracle that defies <coughs> belief. And, and they relegate the story of the miraculous birth of Jesus to the realm of myth and fantasy and legend. It's a great story, lovely story, but not one that any rational, intelligent person today could ever believe, because virgins don't have babies. We all know how it works. It takes a man and a woman to produce a baby. And some theologians and some preachers believe that in asking modern people to believe the story of Christmas and the story of the virgin birth is simply asking too much. And so they try to change the story and they try to give it a different spin. Here's an interesting quote. I don't believe in the virgin birth and I hope that none of you do either. Those words were not spoken by some outspoken atheist, not spoken by an unbelieving skeptic. They were actually spoken from the pulpit of the magnificent Riverside Church in New York City a number of years ago now by a man called Harry Emerson Fosdick, who was the leader and popularizer of liberal theology in America. And Fosdick's words have echoed and re-echoed uh, through liberal churches in our world ever since. And it's probably theologians 
who have done more to discredit the doctrine of the virgin birth than any other group. I believe in the virgin birth, and so do all Orthodox Christians. We believe it's a truth that's not only clearly taught in the Bible, but we believe it's a fundamental plank of our faith. It's part of the Apostles' Creed, which we recite from time to time and which we'll have an opportunity to say at the conclusion of our service today. I believe in Jesus Christ, His only Son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Spirit and born of the Virgin Mary. Uh, there are, of course, the more deceptive kinds of skeptics in our postmodern era who will not attack that truth directly, but will say simply, it doesn't really matter whether you believe it or not. Uh, you've probably heard people say, well, you could believe that kind of thing if you like. It's really up to you, but it makes no difference to me or to my life. But think about it for a moment. If Jesus were not born of a virgin, then the New Testament narratives are entirely false and entirely unreliable. At least two of the gospel writers, in saying that Jesus was born miraculously, have stated something that is false and misleading. Mary herself is stained with the sin of immorality and impurity. She was, of course, betrothed to Joseph, far more binding in the ancient culture than being engaged to be married in our culture. It required a certificate of divorce uh, to end that betrothal. And should someone be found to have been immoral, then she was not just guilty of fornication, she was guilty of adultery, and the accused woman was taken to the gate of the city. Her clothes were ripped and torn. Her jewelry was removed. She was dressed in rags, tied with a rope, and all the women of the town or the city were brought out to gape at her, lest they should be involved in any similar kind of situation. Pretty harsh, pretty cruel treatment. But it was an indication of how seriously that society viewed betrothal before marriage. But that didn't happen to Mary. And if the virgin birth is not true, then it's also the case that Jesus was greatly mistaken about his own paternity because he repeatedly declared that he was the son of God, that God was his father. And without a miraculous birth, Jesus was just an illegitimate child, certainly not the perfect and peerless son of God. And if that's the case, then he was just a sinner like the rest of us. And if he's just a sinner like the rest of us, then he could never be our savior or anyone's savior. You see, if the virgin birth is not true, we're still in our sins. There's no mediator. There's no hope after death. There's no mediator between God and man. There's no Trinity. There's no second person of the Trinity. So in short, the deity of Christ, the lordship of Christ, the saviorhood of Christ, the bodily resurrection of Christ, the second coming of Christ, and the new birth of the Christian believer are all dependent on the fact of the virgin birth. Without the virgin birth, none of those things would make any sense. And that's why some people do not so much deny this miracle of the New Testament, but in attacking the doctrine, they're seeking to undermine the whole of the Christian faith. So why would people not believe in the miracle of the virgin birth? Well, one of the reasons is we live in a world that is largely anti-supernatural. Many people just refuse to accept that miracles are possible. 
And if you don't believe in miracles, then you'll never believe in the virgin birth, which was clearly a miracle. But think of it this way. If there is a God who created the universe, who flung the galaxies out from his fingertips, who painted the night sky with a scintillating Milky Way, then surely for him to take a tiny seed and place it in the womb of a woman is not really a big deal. I'm amazed that people can watch Blue Planet 2 and say that all the beauty and all the splendor and all the complexity of our natural world is just the product of time plus chance plus the random movement of molecules. We believe in a miraculous work of creation. And keep in mind that when God created the world, as we're told in Genesis 1, he placed the same kind of seed in every animal, in every fruit, in every tree, in every plant that exists on his planet, billions and trillions of them. Why then should we think it impossible that God would simply place a Y chromosome into the womb of a woman in order to produce a male child? If you can't believe that God can do a little thing like that, you really don't believe in God at all. Because if he can't do that, he can't do much of anything. Turn it the other way around. If he can create man from the dust of the ground, if he can breathe into his nostrils the breath of life, if he can save our sinful souls, then it's nothing at all for him to reach into Mary's womb and create a child. You see, we live in a world of unbelief, a world where people want to deny the miraculous, want to deny that God is at work in our world. And that's because they don't want to believe in God. They want to live their lives as though God wasn't there. If God created this world, some say, then he has no direct involvement in it anymore. God lives in a world, God lives in a realm that's cut off from the one that we live in. He has no connection with our world anymore. Uh, that's why some people say that they do believe in God, but they add in the next breath that they don't go to church, they don't pray, and they don't think much about God from one end of the year to the next. Uh, Bishop Tom Wright says he doesn't blame them. If I believed in a distant, remote God like that, I wouldn't get out of bed on a Sunday morning either. What's the point of believing in a God <clears throat> who is not involved in our world and a God who's incapable of acting in our world? But the Christian view and the biblical view of the world is that heaven and earth overlap. Heaven and earth intersect. And the sphere where God lives and the sphere where we live are not separated, but they are interlocked. That means that we believe that God makes his presence known and seen and heard in the sphere of our world. And the supreme manifestation of God's presence in this world was the coming of his son, Jesus Christ. He was called Emmanuel, God with us. So that the space where God's world and our world intersect and interlock is no longer the temple in Jerusalem where God originally made his presence known. It's now in Jesus Christ himself. He has come to be with us. Well, how did it happen? Gabriel says to Mary, the Holy Spirit will come upon you. 
The power of the Most High will overshadow you, so the Holy One to be born will be called the Son of God. Notice the importance and the centrality of the Holy Spirit in the birth of Jesus. For centuries prior to the birth of Jesus, the spirit of prophecy had been silent. But notice how Luke refers to the return of the Holy Spirit in all the events surrounding the birth of Jesus. Uh, Earlier in Luke chapter 1, we're told about elderly Zechariah getting on with his priestly duties in the temple, and an angel appeared to him to tell him that his aging, childless wife Elizabeth is going to have a son. And significantly, says the angel, this son John will be filled with the Holy Spirit. And now Gabriel tells Mary that the Holy Spirit will come upon her. And the phrase that Gabriel uses about the Spirit coming upon Mary is a very standard Old Testament expression to describe the Spirit's activity. You remember how in the Old Testament the Spirit came upon people to equip them for special service and special ministry? And when the Spirit came upon a person, he clothed himself with that person's life. He used that person for his purpose. That's what happened with Saul. It's what happened with David. It's what happened with Samson in the Old Testament. And it's also the case in the Old Testament that barren, childless women were able to give birth to children because of God's direct intervention. The birth of Isaac, the birth of Samuel, the birth of Samson were all miraculous births. They were born because of the powerful action of God in the lives of their mothers. And now here in the birth of Jesus... All those Old Testament principles reach a new climax. It's not just a barren woman who becomes pregnant. It's a virgin woman who is with child. It's the result of God, the Holy Spirit, coming upon her. The other phrase which Luke uses here, he says, the power of the Most High will overshadow you. A very rich and significant phrase. The original words used here are the same as those used in the Greek translation of the original Hebrew, where it refers to the hovering or overshadowing of the cloud of God's glory presence, God's Shekinah glory in the Old Testament. Psalm 91 says, the Lord will cover you with his feathers. Under his wings you'll find refuge. And it's referring to the way in which God hovered over his people how God protected them as they wandered through the wilderness. They were overshadowed by the protecting, powerful presence of the Lord. Of course, it was the Holy Spirit that hovered or overshadowed the waters of the original creation out of the deadness and darkness and chaos of that world. He brought life and light. It was the Spirit of God who hovered eagle-like over his people at the Exodus, brought them safely out to freedom. It was the Spirit of God who through the pillar of cloud and the pillar of fire overshadowed the people of God through their wilderness wanderings. It was the cloud of God's glory presence that represented the presence of God in the tabernacle and in the temple. It overshadowed his people. And then Ezekiel says in one of his most dramatic visions, the Shekinah glory cloud of God's presence departed from the temple. God's presence was removed because of the people's sin. And in the very last book of the Old Testament, in the prophecy of Malachi, God promised that he would suddenly return to his temple. And now, Mary hears these significant words. 
full of rich and deep meaning from the Old Testament, the power of the Most High will overshadow you. What's happening, Mary, is that the glory of the Lord is returning. It departed the temple. It left God's people. But now, Mary, it's going to overshadow you. It's going to envelop you. The glory that was formerly hidden, the glory that was only seen occasionally, is now going to be seen not in a building, not in a tent, but in your baby, Jesus Christ. And this baby will be the result of the activity and the intervention of the Holy Spirit so that John in his prologue can write, we have seen his glory, the glory of the one and only who came from the Father, full of grace and truth. Well, where exactly did John see Christ's glory? Here's the interesting connection. The only other place in Luke's gospel where this verb overshadowed is used is in chapter 9, where it's describing the Mount of Transfiguration, where Christ's glory was revealed to Peter and James and John. The cloud appeared and overshadowed them. It enveloped them. And that, that moment when Jesus was talking with Moses and Elijah on the Mount, the glory cloud overshadowed the disciples. They were in the presence of the God of glory. Could there be any clearer indication that what's going on here in Luke 1 is that God is breaking into our world, that God's awesome glory, His holy presence is coming amongst us. By His Spirit, God's doing a new thing in the birth of the Son of Mary, and in order to give birth, this virgin girl will be overshadowed by the power of the Most High. It's a work of new creation, it's a work of supernatural creation. And it has one specific purpose in view. So that the Holy One to be born would be called the Son of God. The function of the Spirit was to maintain the holiness and the sinlessness of the one who would be born. Well, you know how it is when our children or grandchildren are born. It's an occasion for great joy and delight. But we have to admit that no matter how perfect or lovely our babies may be, uh, they all share one feature of ours that we pass on from generation to generation, and that's our sin. We're sinners by nature, sinners by choice. If a perfectly holy and sinless baby was ever to be born into this world, then it would require a supernatural conception and birth, because without that miracle, the baby would be as sinful and as imperfect as every other baby. And that's exactly what happens. In the midst of the mud heap of this broken, corrupt world, there grows a single, solitary, pure life. How can you explain it? How can you say that there's one person in all of history whose life was perfect? The Bible says he was holy, harmless, pure, the Holy One. And the only reason for that is the fact of the virgin birth. He didn't inherit the venom of sin which poisoned the human race from the very beginning. Our human nature needed to be acted upon by the Holy Spirit 
in order to be sanctified. And without that amazing work of the Holy Spirit, you and I would have nothing to rejoice in this Christmas. Because if Jesus were just an ordinary baby, if he had just been born in the normal way with normal natural parents, you and I would have no Savior to save us, no Redeemer to redeem us, no Lord to lead us. But the good news of Christmas is that God has acted. The Lord in all his glory and holiness has come. And you and I can be saved. One final thought. Fast forward the story of Jesus' life to the very end as he's led out to be executed. His crime, you remember, was that he claimed to be the Son of God. And in the eyes of the Jewish authorities, that was blasphemy. And Mary's there. And she's watching all the events unfold. And she sees his beaten back. And she sees his thorn-crowned head. And she sees him staggering and falling under the weight of the cross. And she hears the thump of the hammers as they nail him to the cross. Her boy, her son. She listens to the cries of pain and the agony. And we wonder, why didn't she intervene? What mother would allow this to happen, especially if the charge against him could be disproved? Why didn't she jump forward out of the crowd and say, look, stop, stop it all now. Stop this punishment. This is unjust. He's not God's son. I'll tell you the name of his father. I know how I became pregnant. But she stood silently weeping. Because she knew the truth. She knew how he had been born. What woman ever forgets the birth of her child? And she knew it was miraculous. Her son was God's son. And friends, at this Christmas, we celebrate the birth of God's only son, conceived by the Holy Spirit born of the Virgin Mary. If you're not yet a Christian, you need to trust him. You need to believe in him. Because God is still at work in our world, miraculously, wonderfully. And one day he will be involved again, miraculously and wonderfully, when his glory will come. The earth will be full of the knowledge of the glory of God. As the waters cover the sea, the kingdoms of this world will become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ, and he will reign forever and ever. He's coming again. You need to be right with him. And if you already are a Christian believer, then you need to worship him. You need to serve him. You need to pledge yourself afresh to him this Christmas. I'm going to invite you to do that just now. I'm going to ask you to do something we don't normally do in Presbyterian congregations, but I'm going to ask you to stand and we'll say together the words of the Apostles' Creed as an affirmation of our faith. Let's stand together. <clears throat> Christian, what do you believe? 
I believe in God, the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, and in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, dead, and buried. He descended into hell. The third day he rose again from the dead. He ascended into heaven and sitteth on the right hand of God the Father Almighty. From thence he shall come to judge the quick and the dead. I believe in the Holy Spirit, the Holy Catholic Church, the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and the life everlasting. Amen. You may be seated. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that at this Christmas season, we can affirm again our faith in Christ our Savior. And we praise you and we worship you for all that was accomplished by his miraculous coming into our world. The light shone in the darkness. And we praise you that the darkness has never managed to overcome it. Lord, bless us at this Christmas season as we rejoice again in our blessed Savior, Jesus, as we worship him, who is our Redeemer and our Savior, our Lord and our King. May he be the one who receives the worship and the adoration and the praise of our hearts as we pray in his name. Amen. <clears throat> 